Well, good morning, church. Good morning, everybody. It's so good to see everyone this morning. Um, it's just really good to be in the house of God today. And uh, uh, thank you so much, everybody joining online for Spirit Life class. We actually have um, a special treat this morning. We're gonna have uh, Brother McLean bring us the word today for Spirit Life class. So we're extremely excited. Thank you so much for the word you preached last time. We we're excited to have you come today. Come on up, Brother McLean, and share what God has given. Amen. Well, praise the Lord, everyone. Good to be with you again. Good to be with the Calhouns and the church family. I think the last time we were supposed to be here, we got snowed out. I was to preach in Belgium, and I got snowed out there, got snowed out here, and got snowed out at the church in Milwaukee. And so people were telling me that I was the snowman. But we're glad that it's not snowing today. Praise the Lord. All right, today the lesson this morning is on uh, the inerrancy of the Bible, the infallibility and inerrancy of the Bible, and I'd like you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17. Today, we live in a world where everything is brought un, uh, under question. And, of course, many people do not believe that God's word is actually God's word. But we want to explain to you where the Bible came from and really why it is inspired by God. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it said, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Amen. Now, when we talk about all scripture is inspired by God, we're talking about the written word, but we must understand that when Adam and Eve were created, there was no written word. And so the people that lived throughout the book of Genesis had no Bible. They had no written word. Moses is uh, believed to be the first actual Bible writer, and that would have been uh, several hundred years after, uh, well, actually about 2,000 years after Adam and Eve were created. Uh, we do know this, that even without a Bible, uh, we know that there is a God because the heavens declare his glory. Uh, it would be hard for anybody to uh, look into the sky, uh, look at a forest, look at the ocean, and say that there's no God. Uh, the beauty of creation uh, proclaims that there is a God. Uh, and we also, the Bible tells us that the word of God is written in the hearts of men. So whether you ever had a Bible or not, everybody in here has a conscience. And so before you ever came to church, before you ever heard the Ten Commandments, uh, you know that thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, because the Word of God is, in fact, written in our hearts. But the problem with the two witnesses of creation and conscience, even if you can declare that there is a God by creation, you don't know who he is. And if you can declare you understand that there is a God by conscience. Man has so overridden his conscience that he's basically rendered it useless. And so God chose uh, certain men to write his word over a period of about 1,600 years that we would have a permanent record of what God intended to deliver to his people. Now, the reason that we have a Bible really is twofold. The Bible tells us who God is. The Bible declares in the strongest possible language that there is only one God and that Jesus is that God. 
And the theme of the Bible from the Old even to the New Testament is God's redemption of man. God wants everybody to be saved. He's not willing that any should perish. So it doesn't matter if you're reading in Genesis or you're reading in Revelation, every book will tell you what you must do to be saved. It is directing us uh, in the Old Testament, directing us to Christ, and in the New Testament, reaffirming that, uh, that Jesus is God and that we must be born again. Now, what makes the Bible uh, really different? Now, if I asked, um, if I was to ask a question in here today, uh, if you wanted the color of these chairs to be changed, if you didn't, if you didn't like the green, I'm sure that I would get uh, various answers. Somebody would want uh, blue ones, somebody would want red ones, somebody would want yellow ones, whatever. Um, I did this in Nigeria. I'd bring them into the, you know, in the classroom and. I'd ask them what color they wanted the walls, and I mean, I heard every color, and you know, we had like 15 people sitting there. And when you think about how, how men uh, operate, we, we can hardly ever come to agreement on anything. So if you decided that you were gonna change the, the carpeting or the wall color or the uh, seat coverings on the chairs, uh, there'd be a big debate and somebody would, no matter what color you pick, Pastor, you know, somebody wouldn't like it and say, why couldn't we have left it the way it was and all of that. Now, that's talking about the most mundane things. That's talking about things that really are rather irrelevant. But when you talk about the scripture, you are talking about the very issues of life. And the Bible was written over a period of about 1,600 years from the time of Moses until uh, John, uh, the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. And these men wrote with one voice. And so there were 40 different, approximately 40 different writers, but they all spoke with the same voice. So it didn't really matter if they were talking about uh, finance family life, marriage, divorce, uh, sexual intimacy, uh, the things that are really are the most important things to men, all of them spoke with one voice. You will not read one saying you can get a divorce and the other one says you can't get a divorce. You're not gonna read one that says, you know, you don't have to pay your tithes. They all speak with exactly the same voice which in itself is a miracle, all right? We couldn't even agree what color to paint the walls or what kind of you know, fabric to put on the chairs, but they were writing about the most important things that affect every man, woman, and child in the world, and they were in agreement. Uh, the Bible is, uh, has no, there's no contradictions in the Bible. And again, when you look at the scripture, you, are, you have people writing over, again, 1,600 years, so you're not having people that are from the same culture, that speak the same language, that live on the same continent. You have people coming from every conceivable walk of life. You have kings writing, you have farmers writing, you have fishermen writing, tax collectors, uh, you have uh, a patriarch, you have different people writing, but they're all writing with the same voice. And we know that they're writing with the same voice because there really is only one author of the Bible, and that's God himself. The Bible tells us that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So they wrote what God directed them to write. Um, uh, we know that the Old Testament was written in uh, Hebrew. Uh, the New Testament was written in Greek. There are uh, some small passages in the, uh, both the Old and the New Testament that were written in Aramaic. And I know there are some people that think that Hebrew and Greek are holy languages. They think those were the perfect languages. But in reality, the reason the Old Testament was written in Hebrew was because the Hebrew people wrote the Old Testament, and that's the language that they spoke. And at the time of Christ, the universal language of the world was Greek, and so the New Testament was written in Greek. 
If Jesus came today, the Bible would have probably originally been written, or the New Testament would have been written in English, because English today is the English language. So I do want to make that clear, because I know there are people that they, they contend over different versions of the Bible. They say, well, this one, you know, it's only the King James Bible that we can really rely upon. Um, really, that's not true. Languages change. And so we don't speak Hebrew anymore. And so we have our Old Testament is written in English so we can understand it. The word of God was written in, uh, for us to hold in our hand, to have, and to understand. It wasn't meant to be clouded in secrecy. And so when you look at the Wycliffe Bible translators, they've tried to go in every country in the world and write uh, you know, translate the Bible into the language of the people so they could understand God's word. Um, I think when we were talking actually about translation, and translation is an important part of understanding the, uh, that the scripture is inspired by God, that when we look at the translations, that languages are not exactly equal in word count. So when I, you know, when we were in Nigeria, uh, the language, uh, the vocabulary in many of the uh, Nigerian dialects was much smaller than what it was than the vocabulary in the English language. And so, you know, but they had to write with the language that they had to reach the people with the same message that we received. And so there is no perfect translation. Uh, and again, um, not just I'm not here to beat up on the King James Version, but uh, the King James Version of the Bible, when it was written in 1611, if you lived in 1611 and then you were suddenly reappeared in 2021, you would not say that we are speaking English. All right? The accent and the, and the word usage was much different then. Uh, when the new King James Bible came out, I know there were many people complained about it. They said, oh, it isn't true and to the, you know, translation and whatever. But what they didn't really understand is the King James Bible that you're reading today was, uh, was revised four times before we got the new King James Version. Because many of the words that were used in the original King James Version we're not, were not even not used in you know in the 20th century when the New King James version was actually uh, put out. Uh, for instance, if I said to you today, window, you know, there was a time everybody would be thinking about looking out that window, but now today is everybody's thinking about this. All right, you know, if I said mouse, everybody'd be thinking about a little furry scurrying thing in King James time, but today everybody's thinking about what you have next to your computer. So language changes and meanings change. And so it is important that we do have more modern translations because it speaks to us in the day that we live. Amen? Uh, in, the original, uh, in the original writing of the scripture, we need to understand there were no verse, uh, there were no verse designations, there were no chapter designations. They were written on scrolls, and some of those scrolls, well, the, the scroll for the book of uh, Chronicles actually was 28 feet long. All right, it was 20, so that would be really probably from here almost to the back row. And so if you ever, uh, when you see pictures of the Hebrews and they have the scrolls all rolled up and they're, you know, in the synagogues, they would pull out one of those scrolls. Remember, they don't have a printing press. They don't have books. So everything is written on scroll. And it was only when men began to, you know, try to copy God's word and uh, share it with, with everybody that they had to put in, or they chose to put in, chapter and verse divisions. So when we did do a Bible study, we could say, turn to 2 Timothy 3.16, and everybody would know right where to turn. But they are not, um, you know, they were later inventions, some of a little of it before, uh, 
Christ was uh, before Christ came, but uh, it was revised again at least two times after that. Uh, the other thing that uh, we must recognize is that in your Bible today, some of you have red letter edition. Those are the words of Jesus. Well, praise the Lord, even the black letters are the words of Jesus. All right, all the letters are the words of Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and all scripture is God's word and Jesus is God. But the reason they put the red letters in there was again for clearer understanding so that when you read your New Testament, you would actually know when Jesus was directly speaking, what, uh, you know, what he directly spoke. Uh, when we talk about uh, inspiration of the Bible, of the scripture, uh, it is an all-inclusive term. All scripture is inspired by God. There are things that you may not understand, things that you probably pass over when you read. Um, I preached a message last week from 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse, uh, I believe it's verse 16. And in that verse, there are three names, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. All right? Everybody in here probably, when you get to that place, you pass right over it. Why they separated those three names, you know, is best left up to them, but they were three children of David. And those three names, even though we pass over them, they actually had very significant meaning. Elishama meant God hears. Uh, Eliada meant that God knows, and Eliphalet means God delivers. So in that one verse of scripture was a whole sermon. And those were three of David's children. So every time he came home, when he saw those three boys, he would remember God knows, God hears, and God delivers. And so there are many things that we read in scripture that we don't understand or that we pass over, but all scripture is inspired by God and is there for a reason. And I think that'll be one of the biggest uh, surprises to us when we get to heaven because the word of God will become crystal clear to us. It'll be like our understanding will just be open. Now, uh, in theological terms, the inerrancy of the Bible is, uh, is verbal and plenary inspiration. And what verbal inspiration is talking about is that every word that the original writers wrote came directly from God. Amen. Every single word in the original manuscript of, say, the book of Genesis or the book of Leviticus or whatever book came directly from God, that there was, uh, you know, no error. And plenary inspiration says that there is no thought in the Bible that is the thought of man, that it was all the thought of God. So all scripture is inspired by God, and none of it is the thought of men. Now, we know today that since the Bible has been translated in many different languages and has been translated over and over again, that there, are, there is a, a possibility for error, but we're going to talk about that the possibility for error is, is really very low, and we'll explain that in a couple minutes here. Uh, when you transmit from one language to another, there is possibility that there isn't a word-for-word -word translation. And so when that happens, then, uh, then you have to write it in the language of the people to the best that their language will allow you to do. Uh, but regardless of that, what we have today is still the Word of God. Uh, we know that, um, well, first of all, we know that the Bible claims that it is the Word of God. There's really no other book that will repeat over and over, thus saith the Lord, or God spoke, or God said. But this book repeats it over and over again. And uh, the Jews obviously believed that it was the word of God. They had no uh, misunderstanding when the law was given. They knew it came from God. 
And there is power in the word of God. So when Jesus spoke, they said, never a man spoke like this man because there was an authority in it. And obviously today for a book to survive for 1,600 years, be the most printed book ever, that there has to be some authority to it. There has to be a power to it. People are not buying this just because they think it's a good book. They're buying it because it actually speaks to them. Uh, in the days when we had newspapers, hardly see one anymore, but in the day that we had newspapers, you'd read it one day and wrap your trash in it the next day because it didn't last. Whatever was the news one day is gone the next day. But the word of God is as powerful today as it was back when it was written. Uh, it has self-vindicating authority. Uh, and when you read your New Testament, you will, uh, you will watch Jesus and the apostles will make repeated reference to the Old Testament. So they will name Daniel and uh, they will name Noah and Abraham. Those were real people. They were not just story. Jesus talks about Jonah. Uh, the two most uh, criticized books in the Bible for authenticity are Genesis and Jonah. And yet when you read, what, uh, hear what Jesus said during his ministry, he talks about Jacob, he talks about Abraham, Paul talks about Isaac, Hagar, all of those people are mentioned by name, amen? And so the Bible is telling us in the New Testament that what the books, the 39 books that were gathered that made up the Old Testament were in fact underscored by Jesus. These are the words of God. It was underscored by the apostles. These are the words of God. Um, we also know that Jesus, again, he quoted from uh, nearly every book of the Old Testament and uh, which reasserted that the Bible was God's word. And when you look at the content, the content is consistent with God. God is love. And as you read the word of God, you see God's love displayed in every book, on every page. There is a moral superiority to the word of God. Uh, one of the reasons that, uh, that the Protestant churches reject the Apocrypha, which are the hidden books, Apocrypha means hidden books, which were later added to the Catholic Bible. One of the reasons that we reject those books is that they are inconsistent with biblical teaching. They, are, they, they get the order of Daniel and uh, Abraham mixed up. You know, they, they put one person before the other. It's like they don't know history. So we know that those books are filled with historical inaccuracies and um, they deal with uh, subjects that are never dealt with in the scripture. Out of, out of uh, the apocryphal books come, came doctrines like purgatory. So those books do not have the moral superiority as the 66 books that make up our Bible. Uh, Again, we talk about the unity of the Bible, that men from three different continents speaking many different languages from many different walks of life would agree on the most important issues of life is really astounding because even today you can't go to any house assembly, any, any political body where they can agree on anything. They fight over every, every jot and tittle. But in the scripture, dealing with the most important issues of life, there is total agreement. Uh, now, the Bible was never intended to be a history book or to be a science book, but the Bible is scientifically accurate and historically accurate. And I know today there are many people that believe in evolution, but uh, the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth and that he did it in six days. Now, whatever the evolutionists say, they say, well, you know, it, you know, they believe in the Big Bang Theory. But, you know, it always, you know, it always begs the question, if the Big Bang Theory is true, where did the material come from for the Big Bang? 
And has anybody ever seen a big bang that produced something good? Now just think about that for a minute. You know, when they drop a bomb, they're not trying to get something good out of it. They're trying to destroy it. So if there's this big massive explosion, how does it create what we know as our world today? How is that possible? I mean, it would be like dropping a bomb on a, uh, on a, a publishing house and expecting a book to come out in perfect form. All right? Not possible. When you look at all of the teaching of evolution, none of it is reproducible in our world today. All right, so when they say that, um, you know, that we evolved from monkey, well, first of all, I tell you, I have no monkey in my family tree, amen? And I'm not saying that we don't have some in the family tree that, well, we won't go that far. <laughs> but there are no monkeys in my family tree, and I'm really not like a monkey. All right. And, you know, when they take those pictures and they'll line up uh, horses or they'll line up, you know, people and they'll have men lined up and there'll be some hunched over and some will be short. Well, I could do that in this room today. I could find somebody big. I could find somebody short. I could find I could line you all up and say, well, this is evolution. But if evolution is true, where are the missing links? You know, where did they go? I mean, we didn't jump. If, we, if evolution is true, we didn't jump from a monkey to a man. So where are all those intermediary steps? All right? It, it really denies scientific plausibility. I mean, you cannot, uh, you cannot in your mind imagine how it could happen when it's, you cannot see it in our, in our day. Uh, when you talk about when the Lord said that he made and created the heavens and the earth. He said all things were created after their own kind. So people say, well, you know, we can, um, we can modify, you know, we can breed different dogs. And, but when you breed different dogs, you still get a dog. All right? You never give, a, you know, a, a mother dog never gives birth to a puppy that has feathers. All right, you never see any of that in nature. If, if, a, if a frog or something is, or a snake, sometimes you'll see they have two head or whatever, what do we call that? It's a freak, all right? It's a freak of nature. And if that snake lives long enough to reproduce, all of its babies will have one head, all right? It's not gonna produce a brood of snakes that have two head, all right? It's a freak of nature, it's a mutation, it's, was a, you know, a genetic malfunction, but it cannot be replicated over and over again. So even though people, uh, you know, want to say that it's impossible for the world to be formed in six days, what they don't understand is God can create a mature earth, all right? He didn't have to say, well, let there be plants, and then he had to go plant seed and had to wait for them to grow up. He could have planted a full-grown oak tree and whatever because he is God, amen? And he spoke those things into existence. It's actually easier to believe creation than evolution, all right? Uh, if, if we want to say that, you know, that evolution is true because we have certain characteristics of a monkey, well, how about this one? A watermelon is made up well, actually, a cloud is made up of what? Water vapor, right? A cloud is water vapor. A watermelon is 99% water. So did the cloud produce the watermelon? Did the, did the watermelon evolve from a cloud? Nobody would even think that, all right? And so just because there are certain characteristics, there have, there have to be certain characteristics, or what would we eat? All right, there are, you have to have uh, food and it has to be able to match your body to the extent that you can actually take it for nourishment. Uh, when we talk about history, even Time Magazine, obviously one of the most liberal magazines ever published, praise the Lord, but uh, even they admit that over the years, there have been many archeological finds that have reinforced that David was a real king, Solomon was a real king, 
uh, that Saul was a real king, that Jericho was a real city, that you know these cities, many of them exist even to this day, that these places were real, and that they, uh, uh, that they coincide with the Bible account of what was written in the Bible. Uh, one of the interesting things about the city of Jericho, when the children of uh, Israel went and conquered Jericho, now, in, the, in their day, all, every city usually, uh, to protect itself, had a compound wall. They had a wall all the way around. Many of them were thick enough you could uh, ride a chariot around the top of it. And so the only way to breach, a, uh, to breach a city's walls is they use catapult or battering ram. So they would try to force those walls in. Well, the children of Israel, the Bible says, they shouted and the walls came down. So everybody said, you know, for years, oh, that's totally impossible. That could never have happened. But when archaeologists uncovered ancient Jericho, they found that the walls had fallen outward. Walls had fallen outward. They didn't fall inward. It wasn't, it wasn't man knocking them down and invading that city. God brought those walls outward as a testament he brought those walls down when they shouted. Uh, we know that the Bible says that the life is in the blood. And uh, many, for many years, doctors believed that they could help cure illness by, uh, if you were sick, by taking blood out of you. So our president, George Washington, they actually bled him to death. He was sick and they just kept taking more and more blood till they killed him never realizing that he probably needed more blood. But had they read the Bible, they would have known that the life is in the blood. Uh, people feared for years that if they sailed, they would fall off a flat earth. But if they would have just read Job, Isaiah, Matthew, they would have known they talked about the circle of the earth. Jesus said two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left behind. Two will be in the bed, one will be taken, and one will be left behind. So while we're here teaching today, the Nigerians are already getting ready to go to bed. Amen? Because the earth is round. And so scientifically and historically, the Bible has shown that it is accurate. It has proven over time to be indestructible. And, uh, and perhaps the greatest proof of the authenticity of the Bible's uh, inerrancy is the prophecy. Uh, when you look at prophecy, there are approximately 365 prophecies that concerned the first coming of Jesus. Now, you have to, you know, if, you have to realize that David prophesied that Jesus would be crucified on a cross 1,000 years before crucifixion was a common way of killing criminal. A thousand years. A thou it wasn't like, you know, today we can, we, you know, we have people at the Department of Defense building the next generation of missile or whatever. And so we can kind of guess what will happen in five years and 10 years regarding missile. But they're writing a thousand years in advance. And yet they are telling exactly how Jesus would die. Zechariah wrote 400 years, actually about 500 years before Christ said he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Again, those, those are incredible prophecy. It, makes me laugh every election year, you know, people will prophesy that, you know, uh, Biden's going to win or uh, Trump is going to win. Well, you know, those are the two people running. Those, you know, those are the two choices. All right. Even if you guessed in the primary, you already know one of them is going to be the candidate for their party. It is not like a great prophecy. But the prophecies concerning Christ were hundreds and thousands of years before he was born. So Isaiah said, you know, that he would be born of a virgin. That was, you know, 750 years before he was born. Micah said he would be born in Bethlehem. That was 600 years before he was born. I mean, these people are writing about places and events 
that they have absolutely no idea about. And so uh, prophecy is a, is a tremendous, uh, you know, underscores that the Bible is, in fact, a perfect book and the Word of God. Uh, if, you would, if you would take just eight of the most common prophecies, say the virgin birth, the uh, born in Bethlehem, he'd be called the Nazarene, he'd go down into Egypt, just take eight of them. All right, the chances of one man fulfilling them would be if you took a state the size of Texas, filled it two feet deep with uh, silver dollars, and put a mark on one of them, mix them all up, the chance of you picking that one out and that uh, getting that one coin would be one chance in 150, or 10 to the 157th power. That'd be 10 with 157 zeros behind it. It's beyond the realm of probability. That was, you know, when Jesus fulfilled those prophecies, that was the, uh, the probability that one man could fulfill all of them. Now, I do want to talk a little about, uh, about how we got our, actually got our Bible and... I had asked two people to write, um, to write Genesis chapter 1, to verse 5. Who else has? All right. So we know that we have the Bible. First of all, we have no original manuscripts of the Bible. Does everybody understand that? What Moses actually wrote we do not have. What Peter wrote, what John wrote, we, we don't have any of the originals. The region, reason we have none, none of the originals was because the Jews valued the word of God so highly that as soon as a parchment or a scroll began to show signs of wear, they would destroy it, they would burn it. All right, they didn't throw it in a trash can. They actually burned it because what they didn't want to have happen is, you know, have this corner turned off and then somebody have to guess what was written in that corner and fill it in. So as soon as any manuscript or scroll uh, began to show any signs of where it was burned. And then when they, when they copied manuscript, all right, they copied under the most stringent rules. And so when they copied, you would be sitting at a table and there would be somebody standing behind you. And every letter that you wrote, they would be looking over your shoulder to make sure that it was the correct letter. All right. Uh, the, by the time of the New Testament church, if a king entered the room, while you were copying a manuscript, you could not stand up for the king because you couldn't be distracted. You had to stay focused on what you were actually copying. When they got a page, all right, and so I had these two people do it. You, you don't really realize that you were being a scribe and that you were copying the word of God. I asked them to copy Genesis 1, uh, verses 1 to 5. All right, now, if letters touched each other, then that was considered an error. All right, everybody follow. If there was a, obviously a spelling mistake, that was considered an error. If letters were inverted, all right, so if I, you know, if we wrote, um, you know, spirit and we spelled it S-P-I-R-T, and missed the letter, everybody would know it was spirit, but that was considered an error. As soon as there were three errors on a page, then the whole page would be thrown out and they'd have to start over, all right? That page would be burnt. So now, when I look at this one, and I'm not sure who wrote which one, but this one, the very first word is an error because it's a write-over, all right? There's two lines for the eye, all right? There are letters touching, 
The G is touching the E in heaven. This one is already no good. All right, they did the, they were meticulous about maintaining the authenticity of the scripture. And when the King James Bible was actually uh, written, they had over 13,000 manuscripts that were accurate. So when they went to interpret, they were, it wasn't as though they were guessing. It wasn't as though they had taken one Bible and they were uh, translating it into English. They were actually, they actually had uh, 13,000 either full New Testaments. They had 5,000 full New Testaments and 8,000 partial New Testaments from which to write the King James Bible. What they would do, they divided into group, groups of seven, usually about seven or eight people, and they would be told, okay, you're going to do the book of Genesis, then you over here, you're going to do the book of Exodus, and you would translate. When you got done with Genesis, it would be passed over to that group, and they would go over your work, and they would look to see if you translated properly. If there was a disagreement, then that group and that group would have to reconcile the disagreement before it would be passed to yet a third group. There were actually about seven groups that were passing transcripts back and forth. It had to go through every group before it came to a place where they were satisfied that this, in fact, is the word of God and measures exactly what God intended to say. So they worked, it took, that's why it took them seven years to do. So they continued to translate, and then, every, then it had to be um, gone over by another seven group of scholars. The men that, that translated it were some of the greatest scholars in the world at the time. King James brought people in from across Europe uh, that were fluent, obviously, in English, but also in Greek and Hebrew. So these were not idiots. These were people that were extremely uh, intelligent, very well educated, and they were going to be paid to translate. Now, I have some people complain that, uh, that atheists translate, or people that really don't even believe the word of God have written some translations. But a translator only gets paid if they translate correctly. All right, so you can say you're an auto mechanic, but if you can't fix a car, nobody's going to come to you. If you're a translator and you translate improperly, nobody's going to come and ask you to translate something. So whether they believe the word of God or not, these people, well, in, in the case of the King James Bible, they were all a uh, believer. But today, when, say, the Revised Standard or some of the other versions came out, there's always criticism that some of them really are secular Christian, not really devout Christian or whatever. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't make any difference because their translation still has to be accurate. So you don't ask somebody to translate and then not go over it. If you're going to have somebody translate, you are going to go over it. You're going to go over it with a fine-tooth comb. You're going to make sure that there's no errors there. And so we know that the Bible, um, based upon, uh, you know, figures that we have, and you know, those that criticize the Bible say there were 150,000 errors in transmission, 150,000 errors. But in reality, all right, of those 150,000 errors, many of them were either just a punctuation mark inverted letter, they'd be something that really did not change the meaning of the verse at all. Um, somewhere in here I have lost my place in the note. Okay, so for instance, they would call this an error. Uh, Acts 1 and 14 says prayer and supplication, but in some versions it just says prayer. All right? Is that a significant difference? Does that change what the verse means? Is prayer and supplication the same thing? 
all right? Supplication is just another expression of prayer. Uh, Acts 2.41 says they gladly received uh, the word of God, uh, but some versions say received. Again, does it change the meaning of the verse? You know, it doesn't change the meaning of the verse. Uh, Acts 9.17 says the Lord Jesus. Uh, one version says the Lord. Well, who is the Lord? The Lord is Jesus. And so you see that, so they count those as variations, but they're not significant variations. They're not variations that alter the meaning of the text. Uh, and so they have, uh, they have found that 98, between 98.3% and 99.9% .9 of the Bible is accurate, is absolutely accurate, that there's no error at all. So even though men have been translating the Bible for now uh, thousands of years, we're still getting the same text that Moses wrote, that Isaiah wrote, that Matthew wrote. Right. Amen? So our Bible is, in fact, trustworthy. All right? We can depend upon what God gave us. Uh, there are very few places in the scripture that really are under, you know, under attack or well, one place uh, some criticized that the uh, that the apostles didn't agree with each other about the crucifixion that on the cross Matthew said that this is Jesus the king of the Jews Mark said the king of the Jews Luke said uh, this is the king of the Jews John said this is Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews but really again they're all saying exactly the same thing Taken collectively, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So they were not in disagreement, but it was uh, there because of who they were writing to is, how, is what they wrote relative to what they saw on the cross. Uh, we need to understand that Scripture cannot contradict Scripture. And so when, you know, you hear people say... Uh, Things like, well, in Matthew 28, it says, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, all right? And then Peter says to baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. They say, well, better to obey the words of Jesus than to obey the words of Peter. But again, what was written in Acts is the word of God, all right? If you're going to uh, if you're going to take out Acts 2.38, all right, then you're going to take out for the promises unto you and your children and all them that are far off. All right, if Peter is not a reliable voice, then you have to take out First and Second Peter. All of the other apostles were present at that declaration. None of them corrected him. So then you would have to remove all of the epistles except for what Paul wrote except that when Paul came, said, I preached the same gospel that Peter, James, and John preached. So you'd basically be left with no New Testament. Uh, when we look at uh, some different versions, and I do want to talk about this for a minute, uh, basically in our United Pentecostal churches, we use the King James Version of the Bible. Is that what you use here? Okay, or New King James. But today we also have the, uh, well, for some years, we've had the NIV, the New International Version. We have the New Living Translation. They are equally excellent translation. Uh, they, uh, they were word-for-word -word translation. Now, not every Bible is a translation. Not every, some are paraphrased. So like Good News Bible, the Living Bible, those are paraphrased. They were translating thought for thought. So there, there is a much greater chance for error in those Bibles. But in word-for-word -word translation, the point of the NIV and the NLT was we want it in modern English that modern English people can understand. Amen? Uh, the King James Version says in Isaiah 7:14, the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. 
The revised standard says a young woman shall conceive and bring forth a son. The New World Translation says the maiden shall conceive and bring forth a son. And Matthew 1.23 says a virgin shall be with child and bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Now, there are many people that will rile against the Revised Standard Version because it says a young woman. But in Hebrew culture, a young woman would be a virgin. All right, when the uh, New World Translation calls the young woman a maiden, she would be a virgin. So it's not like they intentionally tried to change something, but to the Hebrew people, it was understood a young woman would be a virgin. So uh, the point of all of this is, is that you know, we do have uh, many different versions of the Bible today. I could teach uh, from any, any Bible you give me. I can take a Catholic Bible. I can take you know, any Bible you give me, I can preach from. Praise the Lord. And when I went to Nigeria, I was surprised going to a classroom. And uh, of course, they're very poor. Many of them didn't even have a Bible. But the ones that had a Bible, they would have I mean, you could never read in unison there because everybody had a different version. But we could teach in Bible school because we were teaching the same thing, and it didn't matter what Bible they had, they were getting the same message. Amen? And so today, we can trust our Bible. We can trust it. It's reliable. It's dependable. It has stood the test of time, and it still speaks to us today. How many of you, when you read your Bible, you feel the power of God? Yes. Amen? Yes. Why? Because the Bible, that is self-validating right there, that God is saying, this is my word. I'm still speaking to you today through the word, just as I did uh, 1,600 years ago or 3,500 years ago. Right. Amen? Amen. I've got to see, what, where is our time? I can't read that clock. Dark. Okay. All right. So, praise the God. Praise the Lord. You can trust your Bible. Trust the word of God. It is dependable. It is reliable. Amen. The Lord bless you this morning.